You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey everybody, it's episode 219 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, and we are brought to you today by GameAt.eu and Panhandle3D.com. Both of them have terrain, GameAt.eu does pre-painted resin terrain and neoprene mats and MDF terrain, and Panhandle3D.com does 3D printed terrain, if you could not guess from the 3D in its name. You've got Podcast 10 at panhandle3d.com for 10% off, and you've got event10 at gamemat.eu for 10% off. So be sure to use those codes and save yourself some money. Also, we can never, ever forget the hardworking, always sacrificing Patreon patrons that support the show. Thank you all. So what have I been up to? Well, I've been up to uh, Brutal Space a lot, a lot of Brutal Space, and uh, trying to get that out before the end of the year, and also a lot of shore hammer work. We had the paint day last week, and then I went behind and did more things on the terrain just to just to make them look a little more finished, and um, washed some stuff and and whatever. Um, as I describe in the real talk for this show, um, there are some things we learned about t- painting terrain, and one of them is that you don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole of painting every little detail, so you will find that in the Real Talk segment. And we have a Tesseract mailbox where Lee, not Leroy, Juicy Jim is having the audacity to argue with me, so we will see how badly that turns. We also are looking at the was it Sagittar? <laughs> I forget what it was called. The vehicle for Leagues of Otan, the little rhino vehicle. The the Vagitar, I think it was. And I think it's Vagisil. Yeah, it was Vagisil. And of course, we declare whether or not we want that or want that not. So, as I was saying, what have I been up to? Uh, went on a family trip this weekend. Uh, this is very late on Sunday night. I'm very tired. But I love you all, and I don't like to disappoint. So as soon as I came home, I hopped on the computer and I started recording. Um, we had a great uh, weekend. We went out to Shenandoah Valley to Skyline Drive near um, West Virginia, where Virginia and West Virginia meet. It was beautiful there. We hiked. We did a uh, the largest aerial climbing obstacle course in the U.S. That's indoor. It's the largest indoor one. And uh, that was really fun. And... Um, Stuff like that. So we had a great weekend with the family. Did a lot of exploring, a lot of hiking, and the climbing park was just awesome. This week at the club, we played a narrative game. I played my free guild guard, my Cities of Sigmar, versus David's um, Sons of Baphomet or whatever, his, his Mega Gargants and all that. And basically we worked... This is the thing I love about narrative games is we worked out that there was a big tanker building sort of thing and we said that was a distillery and we were protecting the distillery we apparently and we just came up with this piece by piece throughout the game most of it at the beginning of the game his goal was to puncture that distillery because they claimed that they we did not pay them well enough to be our ally in the previous battle so they came back to take more alcohol from us and we had to arm the local peasants and arm the staff at the brewery to defend this this brewery. It was pretty funny. Well, he was rolling such garbage. To hit, to wound, everything was a one. He was rolling so bad that the story eventually developed to the point where we did pay them just 
adequately, but they all got drunk and decided that we had not paid them adequately. So he was rolling so badly to hit and wound and save and all that is because his Mega Gargants were already drunk. Well, we were kicking their butt pretty hard, believe it or not. The Cities of Sigmar were kicking the Mega Gargants' butts, but his final Man Crusher or Man Eater, whatever it's called, the, um, the smaller Gargants, he was able to, in one turn, slip past my defenses, make a seven-inch a seven inch charge successfully, and then successfully do his monstrous action to puncture the tank. And we both agreed that if they did puncture the tank by the end of turn four, and this was turn three, that the resulting tidal wave of alcohol would just kill all of the rest of my troops, or disperse them at least. And uh, that's exactly what he did. He kicked in the side of it, and the tidal wave of alcohol came out, and we lost. Now, on paper, we were kicking their butt. We killed two ale guzzlers or man-eaters. I think they're ale guzzlers, I think is what they're called. Ale ale guzzler gargants. We killed the gate crasher mega gargant, and we had almost killed his named guy. I mean, we were kicking butt. But he kind of, I can't say tricked me, but I was not anticipating him moving and charging and doing that so far. I thought I had another turn to block it. And I had previously brought up the people that were blocking that side of the distillery and fought his mega, his his regular Gargans and killed two out of three of them. But then he, in one turn, he rolled suddenly, fantastic, wiped out the rest of my Demigriff Knights, then moved, charged, and busted the tank. And it was Completely unpredictable, and it was a very fun game. Uh, I did lose, though, but it was still very fun. Now, if we were playing a regular game, there I would have just kicked his butt, because they, I was rolling pretty well, and he was rolling pretty bad. But that's the fun thing about the narrative games. It's telling a story, and we get to see how it unfolds, and that's the way it is. So, let's get on to the next segment. Let's open the Tesseract Mailbox. So you've probably guessed what segment this is. Well, you know what really grinds my gears is when one of my Patreon patrons has the audacity to disagree with me. And obviously he's wrong. I mean, because I'm I'm not, right? So Juicy Jim writes in and listen to this asshole. He emails me at pimpcron at gmail.com and writes, Hey, Pimpcron, how have you been? Loving the fall weather, I hope. Life has been pretty hectic for me lately. Been making my way through Tales from the Brutal, which is uh, my short story compilation book about the brutality setting, and enjoying it quite a lot. Usually a story or two a night before I nod off. Lots of overtime at work, and I've... I've maybe I didn't put enough space in between. Usually a story or two at night before I nod off. Period. Lots of overtime at work, and I've also been getting in quite a few games of Age of Sigmar. Our group has officially given up on the current General's Handbook. There are some cool missions, but we are so over the extra seasonal rules. Man, Juicy, I agree with you on that one. I mean, I don't think Age of Sigmar is like way off base right now. I think it's far more manageable than 40k. If you are not happy with Age of Sigmar General's Handbook rules, don't even look in the direction of 40k, because it is... uh, I don't know. It's more complicated than I enjoy. But let's keep going. 
I've been mostly keeping up with the podcast, but it seems to take a while for me to find a moment to type out a comment, even when I feel like I do have an opinion to give. I usually just opt not to once I realize I'm a week behind the conversation. However, despite being a little late to the party, I just had to reach out and let you know how much I fucking hate your codex idea. Now see, this is where the email starts to get really crappy. You know, there was a pretty high bar of quality, and he was making a lot of sense, but honestly, I'm kind of concerned for Juicy. The rest of this, primarily him disagreeing with me, it just doesn't sound right. I'm afraid he's off his meds, or he's maybe had an emotional break, because that's the only thing I can think of why he would disagree with one of my opinions. But let's, I hate to air out his dirty laundry, but let's continue with what he's saying, okay? See, I'm just not into the game for the game. I'm also here for the hobby and the lore. I like the art, seeing a variety of paint schemes, and the stories behind the armies. But you know what I'm not into? Shelling out even more obscene amounts of money because I want the quote-unquote complete rulebook instead of the pared-down quote-unquote gamer's edition that you're pitching. I've never bought a collector's edition because those are, as you pointed out this week, absurdly priced for no good reason. I buy the battle tomes and codexes for the armies that I collect because I want the total package and immersion I get from the book. I hate how much they charge now, but I buy them anyway. Gosh, aren't his comments just, especially the ones that disagree with me, they're just really alarming, I think. Let's keep going into, uh, into his depths of madness here. Do you know how much I'd be willing to pay for your gamer's edition? Not a damn thing. <laughs> Not because the information would be less useful, but because those bare-bones rules are already widely available for free online. If all GW was offering was a print version of Wahapedia that never gets an update, I would politely pass regardless of the price point. I'm not really worried GW would do this, though, because they know that their rules aren't what people are buying into. New players aren't going to look at a slim black-and-white series of data sheets and charts and get excited to play Warhammer or buy new models. If they decided to t try the game, they probably would buy that book, because it's cheaper, and your proposal of charging collector's edition prices for the full book would push it even further beyond the means of the casual gamer. But that gamer's edition wouldn't do much to hook them into the game or invest them in the universe. At that investment, I'm sorry, and that investment is what GW needs to foster in order to keep people playing and buying. The profit margin on the books is nice, but it doesn't end there. Those books are also selling models. They showcase ways to expand the army you already have and pull you into the lore motivating you to see the conflict from the perspective of new armies. I respect your opinion, and I absolutely get where you're coming from. My number one complaint about GW is that their products are just too damn expensive. But I think your motivation and perspective is just a bit too narrow here. <gasps> Juicy, no! <laughs> you are a jaded old-timer with more armies than any one person should be expected to support, with admittedly very little interest in the background lore. An interest that is only waning as you focus on the universes of your own creation. Nothing wrong with that, but it's hardly a universal position. You and James are complaining about the price of gas while you fill up your super yacht. <laughs> no one's happy with the price, dude, but, like, you kind of had a choice here. 
<laughs> in summary, they should just bring back digital army books. That's the cheap alternative that would actually help the game. So now that we've had a disagreement, does that mean that we have to make up at the next Patreon party? Tell Leroy he'd better bring the cuddle tub, and I'm going to need to borrow Grendel's leather pants. XOXO Juicy Gem. Wow. That is... It is really hard to see your parents fight, isn't it? Right on the air. That's just... Ugh. So... For the record, I really do think that Juicy's bringing up some good good points here, especially being that the codexes and the entire package is exactly what you're buying into when you buy the lore and the model showcases and the rules and the this and the that and all that. So I do definitely understand where you're saying where you're coming from, and I do think that probably my point of view is not like you said, it's not universal. I have too many armies, and most people don't have that many armies, right? And Just James is the same way as I am, although actually he's got even more armies, so it's it's probably even a worse scenario. But you know what? I realized in reading your email that I kind of misspoke. I should have said something slightly different. And, and really, I'm not backtracking at all on my position, because for me this probably would make sense. Although, you know, there's... It's hard to describe sometimes, but philosophically, right? You can say that there's a difference between logic on paper and the human experience. Logically on paper, if I want to go buy some chocolate, right? I'm in the mood for chocolate. I'm going to go buy some chocolate. Logically, I should try to get the cheapest possible chocolate. I go to... Dollar Tree or Dollar General or one of those places, and I get the most no-name, dry, crappy chocolate, right? Because logically, chocolate's chocolate. I said I was in the mood for chocolate, right? But the human experience is that you want good chocolate. You don't just want some crappy chocolate. You want good, rich, velvety, tasteful chocolate. So I've said a million times, I like my chocolate like my nudes. I like them tastefully done. So, I think you really do hit on something. I was being a little too um, pragmatic, maybe. I was being a little too pragmatic with it, and I was not taking into consideration the human experience. Because Juicy said, I want chocolate, and I handed him this awful, bland bar of something that says chocolate flavor. You know, it's not even real chocolate. And he's saying, no, I, I want I want actual chocolate. So I do understand what you're saying, but I do think that I kind of misspoke a little bit there because what I should have said is that ideally they're going to bring back the digital codexes. That would be, the just like you said, that's the middle ground. That's what you want. That's what I want. I want cheaper codexes and you want the full package. Well, obviously, if they're digitally made, then you can you can just do that. Now, Grendel brought up a good point, is that if it's digitally done, then people are just going to pirate the crap out of it, and that's probably why they've stopped doing the digital codexes. My argument still is, is that if they made you, if they made a list building app, like they do, kind of, for Age of Sigmar, where it's got all the information in it and the data sheets and all that, they wouldn't have to use PDF. They wouldn't have to use a format that's just, oh, copy and paste, that's all of it. You wouldn't have to do that. You could have all that information, and you'd be bypassing that loophole of, oh, it's a common file, right? Well, if you made all your files a .gw file, right, it would take a long time, if anybody would care enough to do it at all, make something that will read that. 
And then you would still be having your cake and eating it too. You'd be selling the codexes. They'd be cheaper for everybody, but you still offer them the full picture. So when it was the part of the email where you brought up the digital codexes, that's when it clicked in my head. And I thought, you know what? I should have brought that up. I should have said, and this is truly how I feel, but I kind of just ignored that portion of it. If they're not going to make a good list building app, and if they're not going to include the codexes as a digital, cheaper version of the hardback book, then this is my other alternative, the paperback codexes and all of that. Now, also, your email has brought to my attention that I probably do have too narrow of a focus on this, and it probably would not pull new players in the same way these nice, pretty hardback books are. Now, of course, they have their own issues, like they're not updated or they're FAQ'd and you gotta glue it and paste it into your book and all that. Games Workshop has its own issues in other directions, right, with these printed books. But you're completely right. I think in the long run, the human experience of the printed, beautiful, lore-filled codexes is probably definitely doing more good than harm. And probably my gamers editions probably would not help draw people in, just like you said. So I do have to actually say that I think for the most part, I do agree with you. But I kind of wish I had caveated that saying that, yes, I think digital codexes and a working list building app would be the solution to that. So there you go. You made the Pimpcron redact his position. Thanks a lot, Juicy. I am so embarrassed in front of all these people. I am really upset right now. So... Thank you for writing in, Juicy. As always, it was insightful, it was savage, and it was clever. So, that is two <laughs> Distract Mailboxes I've had where known listeners, long-time listeners and Patreon patrons have written in to tell me that I'm wrong. Well, that is a, that might be that might be a new record. Anyway, Games Workshop, please make a nice list builder and include digital codexes similar to how you do for Age of Sigmar. Why don't you just do that? I still will never understand why they don't do it. So anyway, please feel free to email me at pimpcron at gmail.com or facebook.com slash pimpcron. And Juicy, I forgive you. We'll work it out in the cuddle tub next time. Want that or want that not? This is the part of the show where we say we want that or want that not, and today we are covering the Sagittar. Yeah, apparently it's the Sagittar. So this is for the Leagues of Votan, and this is a small transport. It's $60, which it's really hard to tell how large this is. It looks like it's larger than a Rhino, and it's $60. That does not seem like an absolutely horrible, uh, horrible price point for me. Maybe they've finally won me over, I don't know, but... This is a pretty cute little truck. I really don't know much about it as far as... Uh, it says it carries small squads into battle or field two and split a squad between them. Now, that's actually pretty interesting. That you could field two of these and half your squad goes in one, half goes in the other. That's actually pretty cute. I like that idea. And I don't think that's game-breaking in any way. It's kind of hard to say these days. But this is a cute little vehicle. It looks like something that you'd see like a Mars rover... It's got the little Mars Rover knobby tires, and uh, it looks very agile. It's got like a glass cockpit dome with a dwarf inside of it. It's got guns in the front of it. It's got guns around it. It's got a turret above it with a little cockpit um, turret gun window, 
And uh, I think it's I think it's a really cute vehicle, and it's in keeping with the rest of their looks. You can outfit it with a bunch of different missile launchers, or like a Laz cannon, or like an auto cannon variant, um, things like that. And um, I really like the look of this vehicle. I like the look of the other vehicle for Leagues of Otan as well. I think, in my personal opinion, their vehicles look way cooler than their troops and their infantry do. I think that these vehicles are pretty adorable. And I'm seeing a size comparison here of a Space Marine, a primary Space Marine versus this. And it does look to be about the size of a Rhino. It's actually taller than a Rhino, I believe. And it's about roughly the footprint of a Rhino. So for $60, um, I mean, if it only holds small squads, that's kind of a bummer. At least a Rhino holds 10, right? But I do love it. I could definitely see you using this for like a traveling merchant if you're going to do some sort of rogue trader style narrative, right? I could definitely see that. I think it's got some definite possibilities in different directions other than just being a Leagues of Votan vehicle. Um, it seems like it's got a bit of firepower. It almost seems like it's going to fill the role of like their Predator because of the giant turret up top and things like that. So maybe this is their Predator version of the vehicle. And uh, I like it. It is a want that for me. I don't think I will be playing Leagues of Votan because I really don't like their infantry models other than the giant berserkers with axes. Those are the only ones I actually like. Everyone else is very just kind of fine. I don't hate any of them. I do like their bikers. I do like the big turtle van. I like all that. I think their vehicles look way cooler than their infantry. So um, this is no different. I think it looks really neat. It's got a really neat aesthetic to it. And it looks like a Mars rover to me, which is a positive. I don't think that's a negative at all. So $60 for that. I suppose that is a want that from the Pimpcron. A ringing endorsement. Go buy four. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimpcron. Hey, it's time for Real Talk with the Pimpcron. And today is kind of technically a Tesseract mailbox. I was speaking to a listener named Kenny. And Kenny and I were discussing terrain. He said that because I own Shorehammer and all that, do I have any experience with painting terrain? And of course, I, I laughed in his face. I said, Kenny, you son of a bitch. No, no, no. Um, actually, I have a lot of experience painting terrain. And because we paint a lot of terrain for Shorehammer every year, we have paint parties and things like that. And when I was talking to Kenny, he said that he spends far too much time on his terrain on uh, for his table, and it's very frustrating to him because he's trying to start up a board at his house so that he can play with him and his wife. They both play Warhammer, and it's very frustrating to him because he feels like he's got to get every single little detail, every single little nook and cranny of these terrain pieces because he's painting them like regular models. And I said, Kenny... You son of a bitch. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I said, Kenny, Kenny, come on, man. You've got to tone it back a little bit, and I'll tell you all that I know about painting terrain for a table. And I'm not saying paint it horribly. I'm not saying anything like that. But there are a few key things that you need to keep in mind when you're painting terrain and exactly how it's going to impact your battlefield. And of course, the speed in which you get it produced. Am I right? First off, Dry brush everything. That's right. Dry brush everything. And if you're feeling fancy, you can do a, another dry brush of something lighter over top of it. So let's take a typical castle, right? 
Over the years, the Shorehammer team has learned how to paint gray like a mofo. What we do is we prime it black, and then we dry brush it this medium gray. You can use uh, paint store paint. It doesn't. It, I would actually suggest not using Games Workshop paint. If you go get those, um, in the U.S., they're called Liquitex. It's kind of like Michael's, Michael's craft store, uh, like a medium style of paint. It's not like thick. And it's not real runny and thin. It's kind of right in the middle. And um, it's it's acrylic paint. They come in big tubes. And they are far more affordable than Games Workshop. And remember, you're just going to be dry brushing. You don't need some fantastic paint scheme or anything like that. You need to dry brush all of this gray if you're doing a castle. And then go back and lightly dry brush it from the top down with your brush. Big, wide, three or four inch brush going downward with a light white or a light cream dry brush. And I'm telling you right now, Kenny, it will blow your socks off. It looks fantastic. Now, that's not all you do, though. Then you've got to pick out some details on the terrain to add color. So a color that pops. But it's very important that you pick neutral and darker colors for your terrain. And there's many reasons for this. But number one, realism. Most things in real life are not some bright red shiny Corvette. Most things aren't. If you look at your house outside or if you look at apartment buildings or businesses or whatever, a lot of those are earth tones. A lot of them are creams and grays and tans and browns and maybe some dark reds or dark blues or, or whatever. They're very rarely some god-awful neon yellow or day-glow orange or something like that. Unless you're talking about like the old school McDonald's or something like that. But um, I believe pretty much every city in the U.S. and probably around the world has that one weirdo person that paints their house like crazy colors. And they just paint them like 17 different bright colors. And then their homeowners association gets on them for being so uh, offensive to the neighbor's eyes. Because like, oh my god, what are you, a clown? And, and then it's a whole big deal. Pretty sure every single city around the world has one person like that. And I think basically we can all agree that it looks just awful. Looks plain awful. And if you don't do an extra dry brush on your terrain, it will look kind of basic. If you just dry brush it gray, it's not going to look half as good as if you just lightly dry brush white or cream over it. Of course, you can get fancy and do a lighter gray or something, but you really don't want nuance with terrain. And it's a little bit different if you're talking about some sort of centerpiece. I'll try to get to that later because a, a particular centerpiece might be calls for putting more effort into it. But by and large, you want to dry brush everything. And then if there's some terracotta tiles for the roof or if there's some timbers or something else, some trim around your, you've got stones around your door or something like that that you want to highlight, then you can highlight it. And this is what I'm talking about because you don't want to pick a bunch of different colors. You want to pick neutral and earth tones, typically. I mean, if you specifically have an Imperial Fists bunker you want to paint, you want it bright yellow, okay, that's a little different. But just generally speaking, ruins and buildings and things like that are generally muted colors. And one of the reasons for that is because you don't want your terrain to upstage your models your models if you look at an orc or a space marine or an eldari or a tyranid a lot of times they're bright colorful colors and 
you want to be able to see your models on the board very easily. And if you literally sprayed just neon green and orange and yellow over all your terrain, not only are you going to get an aneurysm and your eyes going to start twitching, but also it does not look realistic. And even more importantly, it takes away from your army. So your terrain and your mat and everything is the backdrop for your battles. It's the environment they're fighting in, but it is not the focus of the game. The focus of the game is your very finely painted miniatures. So you don't want to pick any color schemes or anything like that that's going to take away from the models that you spent a ton of time painting. Also, you could spend forever on a terrain piece. You really could, because they're so giant... You could put a billion years of detail into them. And honestly, at the end of the day, I could paint a castle and I could paint a castle in under an hour. A whole castle, dry brush it, prime it, dry brush it, dry brush it lighter, pick out some woods and some other colors and maybe use my dry brush gray, my base gray, to paint some stones around the door or something like that. And the difference is you can use the same paint over uh, when you dry brush it, it's actually much lighter or it comes off darker. I mean, it comes off darker because you're priming it black. So when you dry brush it, it's not all the pigment density coming through. But if you want to do some details such as around doors or whatever, like a window ledge, you use the solid color. You don't dry brush it. Use that same color and you you paint it the solid color. And what that does is it keeps it in the same family, in the same group of colors and in fact, it is the same color, but it's not going to appear to be the same color. So that's that's really important. But I could spend an hour and completely get a piece of terrain finished. I mean, completely done. And you could spend four days, eight hours a day, painting the same piece. And while yours will certainly look better than mine, when you're playing the game, you're not going to be able to tell. No one is going to look inside through the door and see that you painted a mural on the inside of this castle on the ground floor. It's just, it's they're not going to do that. And that's just the, the plain and simple of it. So Kenny was agonizing over having, you know, two ruins finished on his whole table. And that's when I was like, Kenny, man, you need to just back up. And remember, there's always time later on to add more detail to your terrain if you want. But I'm willing to bet that Kenny and everybody else is going to find that you won't go back to add more detail because you realize what you're looking for is that backdrop for your games and your armies. And so you want nice, neutral, non-offensive colors, and then your army will pop on it. You can see your army easily, and it looks more realistic. We actually made that mistake one year at uh, doing a paint party for Shorehammer. I had bought some frontline gaming orc buildings from MDF, and I decided afterwards that they were so ugly that I more or less donated them to the gaming store because we chose yellows and reds and white and orange, and it just looked terrible. I mean, the, the colors clashed, and they were far too bright. We didn't pick like a muted yellow, like an Averland Sunset. We didn't use like a corn red. Oh, no, no. We were using that, you know, Mephiston red or whatever. We were using the bright colors and it just looked like crap. It looked like they were playing in a cartoon town is what it ended up looking like. And that is not what you're probably going for for your board. Painting terrain follows the same methodology that a lot of people use for painting troops. 
a lot of people claim that they paint their troops to a tabletop standard because you're going to see them in a group. You're going to see 10 or 20 or 30 dudes next to each other. No one's going to pick up a single model and take a real hard look at them to make sure you painted those pupils on just right. Nobody's doing that. But somebody will pick up one of your characters who is a centerpiece for your, your army and look at them. And that's the one that you want to spend your time on. If you enjoy spending hours upon hours painting terrain or models or whatever, then you know what? You do you, boo. And if you enjoy it, that's that's all the better. But if you're like Kenny, where he's kind of stuck in miniature painting mode, where he wants to get every little belt buckle or every little doorknob, you know, uh, flange or, or whatever, he's going to drive himself crazy. And that's basically what he was doing. He had bought a bunch of terrain, and he wanted to hurry up and get his table done, but it was driving him nuts, so I am hoping to hear back from you, Kenny, and let me know how it went, because it would be very helpful. Now, this wasn't necessarily a letter into the Tesseract mailbox, we were kind of more or less talking on Messenger, but that's fine, because this should be helpful to other people. So, here are the key reasons, once again, one last time. You want muted colors, you don't want to take a ton of time on the terrain, you want it to be quick. And you need to dry brush, probably dry brush twice, pick out a few details. You don't want the colors or the paint job to upscale your actual models. And I think that's pretty much a recipe for success. If you would look at any of our terrain at Shorehammer, it is some good looking terrain. But if you look real close at it, you just see it's dry brushing, maybe dry brushing it twice. Actually, everything for Shorehammer gets dry brushed twice. It's usually a, a gray or something like that, and then a lighter color. Something else that I learned years ago from our old friend, Bliggity Blam Steve, from years ago, is that cream, the, the color cream, can be basically dry brushed over any other color and still highlight it and make it look good. Because white is often far too bright to be a good highlight, and cream is just that slightly muted color. And you can dry brush that over blue. I've seen it done over green, over red, over orange. I mean... you. If you're dry brushing very lightly, there there is almost no no wrong answer. And that will cause your details to pop out and all of that. Um, also, when you're going for wood colors, you probably want to stick with the uh, muted wood once again, like a Mornfang Brown or something of that nature. You don't want... I've seen a lot of people use something more along the lines of a uh, an orangish, like a, I think it's called a raw sienna or burnt sienna. I think it's raw sienna. Like a real orangish for the the wood, and it just does not look good. Um, now, if you are painting uh, windows on like an intact building, we just realized this recently when we were painting models from uh, uh, Panhandle3D.com for Shorehammer. We got some Marvel Crisis Protocol buildings painted, and we painted the entire windowsill solid color compared to like the wall color. But I was looking at them, and I was like, "Gosh, it's it's irking me." that there's no depth to these this color that we did around this windowsill. It really needs to have some sort of depth. Well, then I took an Agrax Earthshade and just gently washed the whole inside of the windowsill, and it looked infinitely better, because all of a sudden now the window has a slightly different tint inside than it does outside, and it just brought the whole thing together. So I did want to bring that up. Um, also, what we found is that bricks tend to be browner and darker red than bright red sometimes when people think of brick they think of oh bright red but when you really look at brick in real life it's rarely a bright fire engine red it's usually like a uh 
like a corn red or maybe even a little oranger than that. Um, and of course they do have bricks that are kind of a dark gray, but I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here. The point is, is always go darker than lighter with terrain pieces. That way it's not an eye irritant. Now, the only exception to spending a lot of time and effort on a terrain piece is if it's going to be the centerpiece for your whole board. And I could definitely see that. But once again, that goes back to the whole troops versus HQ scenario, where the one centerpiece, which is like my Star Drake that Leroy Jenkins got me, or something like that, the main, my my uh, Glutos, whatever his name is, Escorleon, for my Slanesh Demons, um, one of those centerpiece models you can spend tons of time on to make it look really good and really pop, but everything else you're, you're kind of just spinning your wheels, and that's at least my take on it. That's what I've learned over all these years. So hopefully Kenny gets back to me and lets me know how it goes. If he actually can bring himself to just tone it back, remember, these aren't miniatures, this is just terrain, and this is not the focus of the game. So thank you to Patreon patrons for supporting the show. I love you all, smoochy smoochy. And thank you to GameAt.eu for supporting the show, and panhandle3d.com for supporting the show as well. And I will see you next week, people.